Well, church, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning. We'll be in Luke 14, uh, beginning, I think, in verse 15, somewhere around there. Yeah, that's right, Luke 14, verse 15. You'll find that on page 874 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And, um, and so I invite you to find your way there. A wonderful story. In fact, uh, we're going to consider this morning the parable of the Great Banquet, which is one of my favorite parables. And this should be much higher in popularity amongst the parables as far as I'm concerned. And, and I, I mention that because uh, uh, I have been told, uh, and you have been told more importantly, that this is Pastor Appreciation Month, right? And, and we all, I think, would agree that's kind of a ridiculous idea. Um, maybe Pastor Appreciation five minutes, um, but a month is, is a little excessive, isn't it? And, and you all, in your great kindness to, to me, and I trust Pastor Josh, have been affirming me this month and writing cards and, and uh, well-wishings and thanksgivings. And I, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, I love reading those with my kids and being able to celebrate the love that we have for each other. But let me just say, um, in light of this passage, you know, I, I think about what I did uh, to prepare for this. And and, and I, I spent hours just thinking and praying and meditating and considering writing. And, and you paid me to do that. And then you come and you let me talk to you for close to an hour. I mean, that is crazy. Who in the right mind would do that? Right? So I, I want to thank you. It was such a delight. I can't believe I have the best job in the world and, um, and perhaps uh, the best church as well. So uh, praise God for what he's doing here. So Luke chapter 14, verse 15, hear now the word of God. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. I'm particularly thankful for this passage. It has been a great feast for my soul. And we ask, even in your kindness, that it will be as well for those who gather here this morning. So work in us and through us and for us. Help our hearts to hear the words of Christ, to rejoice in them, be transformed by them, that we might become more like Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. My, my uh, children, my f- whole family, in fact, are, are big uh, fans of Peter Pan. Um, all of our animals are, are named af- after characters. We, we, have, we have cats named um, Wendy and John. Uh, we have dogs named, uh, dogs named Tiger and Lily. We, we love Peter Pan. Uh, uh, when we first moved to the mountain, we, I, I read my kids uh, the story. It's an incredible story, by the way. Uh, very bloody, however, so just to give you a warning. Um, but it is a, a wonderful story of, of uh, adventures uh, with these children. In fact, I remember reading my kids Peter Pan, and, and I finished the chapter, and I said, Now listen, if Pan comes into your bedroom tonight, um, you're, you're not allowed to go to Neverland. Okay? <laughs> And uh, I said, it's okay if you just want to fly around the room, but you cannot fly out the window. And they all giggled and laughed, except my four-year-old with eyes wide said, Daddy, I don't want to fly around my room. Right? Um, we, we love these stories. In fact, we, we love to read fables. And uh, we, we love these, uh, these fairy tales in our home. And, and other people love them, don't they? There's a reason why we love them. There's a reason why people write them. And I think they do. Because at the heart of them, they are true. I believe we are going to live in a castle in a faraway land, if you will, with crowns upon our head. I believe there is a place no more sorrow or sadness, no more disease, no more destruction, no more injustice, no more poverty. I believe there is a king who will perfectly reign in all power. I believe there is a neverland. I believe there is happily ever after. In fact, I think that probably doesn't capture perfectly ever after, gloriously ever after, in a place of joy and fulfillment and adventure with friends and our family and the Lord. And I think that in our study of Luke, we've seen Jesus is constantly teaching this. He's constantly describing this place, this, this kingdom in which he has just started to bring, but one day will come in its fulfillment. It's a place that he tells us over and over again is a place of feasting. It's a banquet. It's a feast. Now think for a moment, if you will, what was the best meal you have ever had? Your favorite, favorite meal. I asked my wife this uh, a year or so ago, and, and all her meals that she listed were ones she didn't cook. <laughs> best meal you ever had. I, I think of, for me, it's Thanksgiving uh, at Grammy and Granddad's house, and, and uh, boysenberry, homemade boysenberry pie with the, the boysenberries just picked right off the, the vine uh, earlier that week. And, and my Grammy was such the person that she, if she worked all day on Thanksgiving meal and if you finished it in 20 minutes, she would let you hear about it, right? And, and so we all ate slowly and we knew the rule was you have to get seconds even if you don't want seconds, right? I love those memories. I think of uh, a time I took a leg or two uh, dinner down in Orange and uh, we went to a restaurant. I didn't know you could spend this much money on a dinner, but I found out at the end. Um, but uh, they kept, the chef kept sending little, little things out, compliments of the chef, you know, all these. It was a lot of fun. We had a, a great time. I remember one meal when we were past, well, I was pastoring down south in rural Virginia, and we, we drove into Lynchburg about an hour away to, to a nice steak restaurant. We were there at the church maybe about three or four months, my first senior pastorate, and we were kind of like anxious. Is this going okay? And so we went out for our anniversary, and I walked into the restaurant, and the maitre d' was standing there behind his little, his little uh, desk, and he says, Mr. Karn, I presume. And I thought, well, what, what is going on here? Uh, and he says, uh, right this way, we have your table set up for you. Your meal has been paid for. 
And, and uh, so I inquired, what do you mean my meal's been paid for? And he said, um, your church uh, has called ahead. The, the leadership of the church has called, and they have already taken care of the meal. And we, it, it, was, it was like perfectly timed because we were unsure. Is this, do they love us? And Hilliger and I, I just remember that dinner saying, yeah, they, they love us. Do so you think about these, these meals, these, these times in your life? I mean, when you think about your favorite meal, it's always, of course, good food, right? Right? There always has to be good food, but it's more than food, isn't it? It's the friendship there. It's the conversation you have. It's the laughter. It's the celebration. If, I, I can almost guarantee that if you're thinking of your greatest meal, every single one in this room is not thinking of a meal you had alone. It's always with someone, right? Where you're not rushed and you're, you're hanging out, just celebrating and your love for each other and, 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 and feasting. In fact, I find it amazing that, it, that, that God commands that this happens. Isn't that interesting? When you look at the, the Old Testament uh, holidays, they're all feasts. God says, well, how do I obey God? Well, God says, okay, this is how you obey. I want you to get good food and friends and family together and, and have a good meal. That's what I want you to do. And I want you to do it uh, uh, periodically as a way to remember my goodness for you. God commands us to, to feast. In fact, some have said you could trace the, the history of redemption throughout the Bible just by looking at the meals in which we see. For instance, the first meal did not go so well. As Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and the world became cursed as they rebelled against God and death immediately followed on the heels of that meal. That was a bad meal. Right? You go a little bit farther, you, you have the Jews in bondage there and, and what are they doing? They're, they're celebrating Passover. They're eating a Passover lamb after they took the blood of the lamb and wiped it on the, their doorposts around their doors as the angel of death goes around and strikes down those who have not f- followed God's instruction strikes down the firstborn. I mean, that, that's an intense meal, isn't it? As you, they're beginning to learn of the need of a blood atonement. And then you, you get to Jesus, by the way. You just, and, and you notice Jesus always eating. This is the sixth meal that we see in just Luke's gospel of Jesus eating. He's always eating with friends and foes alike. And then we get to his final meal, right? And we call it, what, the Last Supper. And he says, listen, the things in which I'm giving you to eat are a reminder to you that I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die so that you might be forgiven. I am the Passover lamb. And then he's resurrected from the dead and he shows up and they all think he's a ghost. And so what does Jesus say? He says, no, I'm not a ghost. Watch this. And he, and he begins to eat in front of them. And then a little bit long, later, he, he pulls Peter out of the lake, doesn't he? And Jesus is cooking breakfast for Peter. And there over breakfast, Jesus reinstates Peter back into his fold and, and confirms his love for him. And then he's given the church a meal. I mean, we, we, we celebrate... A, periodically once a month for us that that Christ has come and died for us by eating and by drinking and anticipating that he will come again in fact anticipating what we read about in Revelation 19 which is the wedding feast the wedding supper this magnificent party this this fantastic feast so you say what's heaven like what are we going to do for all eternity I think there's many ways to answer that question. But at least part of your answer is heaven's, heaven's like a party. Heaven's a celebration. Heaven's a banquet. I, I don't know if you like feasts. You like celebrations. You like holidays. Well, you do, don't you? Because, you know why? Because you're made in God's image. And God likes to celebrate. 
God likes joy. Maybe you say, well, I don't know. I'm not buying that. You, you, know, uh, you know what Jesus' first miracle is? According to John chapter 2. He's at a wedding. There's a party. And the party goes back because they run out of wine. And so what does Jesus do? He takes this water and turns it into wine. And maybe you think, well, that's, that's kind of a trivial miracle, right? Why would that be his first miracle? Jesus turning a bad party into a good party. Well, you know, the Bible constantly is telling us, especially in John's gospel where this miracle is recorded, is that the miracles, John calls them signs, doesn't he? He says they point to someone. The miracles of Jesus are never naked displays of power. He never says, okay, everybody gather around, and he goes, whammo, and blows up a tree or something like that. Right? He's never flexing, look what I could do, right? He's showing us what the kingdom is like. Through his miraculous activities, he's giving us foretastes and appetizers of what the world will one day be like. And so he has this, this party and he says, this party is, is going bad. Let me, let me fix it. And he creates this wine. And you see, the Christian life is not behave and obey and don't smile too much. The Christian life is not, okay, it's dull and it's hard, but it's the price you pay. No, the Christian life is a life of celebration. It's a life of joy. It seems to wherever Jesus is walking uh, in this desert, uh, life blooms around him. Joy follows. Heaven is a feast. In fact, I would suggest a, a quick application of this point is you should practice heaven. Right? You should get ready for it. All right? We should feast more often, I think, with friends and good food. Because the kingdom of heaven is like a feast. But not all feasts are, are good, are they? And Jesus here in Luke 14 is at a feast with a bunch of religious guys, and it's not going so well. In fact, it's a setup, isn't it? Instead of dinner, really, uh, as we considered last week, they're watching him closely, and they want Jesus to heal this dying man. Not because they love the dying man, but because they hate Jesus. And they want him to do it because it's the wrong day, according to their tradition, and so they could accuse Jesus of sin. So Jesus doesn't care about their traditions, and he heals the man anyways because he loves him, and then he points out their hypocrisy. He, he says to them, in effect, you know, this, this party kind of reminds me from where I'm from. We have parties there, but mine are much different. And he goes on and he insults the guests, right? You all are choosing the wrong seats. And then he insults the host. You've invited the wrong guests. Why are there just judgmental religious people here? Where's the single mom? Where's the college students, right? Where, where, where's the poor? Where's the widower? Where are the lame and the hurting? Why aren't they here? He just goes around and systematically insults everyone in the room. And by the way, this is the last time Jesus will dine with the Pharisees. And, and that's awkward, isn't it? You're the guest of honor and you go around and insult everybody. And this party's somewhat of a disaster, isn't it? Everyone's mortified. It's very awkward. Now, I kind of like awkward situations. I don't know about you. Um, some people are very uncomfortable in awkward silences. Evidently, there was a man at this party who was somewhat uncomfortable, as we see in verse 15. When one of those reclined at table with him, he heard these things and said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It seems to me very much he's trying to break the tension. Maybe have a nice little toast there, which everyone will agree on. He, 
He, he says, you know, hey, well, listen, you know, we have these differences. Well, but want to be great when we're all in the kingdom of God and we're all, we're all eating together and everything's good. Won't that be great? The assumption, of course, is that they'll all be there. The assumption is everybody will say, amen, well done, yes, that will be great. And we, we kind of turn this party around. Well, they don't like the tension. Except Jesus. He evidently likes it. Because he says, oh, in effect, it will be a great party. Too bad you're not going to be there. In fact, none of you will be there. You see, no one ever slept through a conversation with Jesus. You're not coming. I wonder, are you going to be there? Will you be at that heavenly feast? And, and if you say, yes, I will, what do you base your confidence on? Because evidently many people are like this man who has a great deal of confidence that he is going to heaven, but he has nothing to base it upon. And Jesus goes on and he explains this parable, this parable of the great banquet. He describes who are, who are not coming, who are coming, and what it will be like. So consider with me as we can look at the words of our Lord. The kingdom of God is a feast, a feast that will be refused by many of the familiar. Point number one, this feast will be refused by the familiar. Note verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So we have a man who's throwing a great banquet, a mega banquet in the Greek. He invites, you see who? He invites many people. He invites many to his banquet. And then he sends out the second invitation telling them it's all ready. Verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. So there's two invitations here. The first, in verse 16, he sends out an invitation. I'm throwing a party. I would like you to come. Can you come? And you would go ahead and commit. You would RSVP, right? You would say, yes, I plan to come. And then he gets his, knows who's coming. And then he would begin to repair the banquet. Now, repair, there's no Costco you can run to. This is a major deal, right? You're killing animals. You're, you're, you're uh, getting a, you know, a, a place to host this. And so this is a lot of work. And you make all these preparations. It probably takes weeks to get this thing together. And so he sends out this second invitation in verse 17 to everyone who said they were coming. And he said, it's ready. The banquet's now ready. It's time to come. The food's being uh, plated, right? The tables are set. And now everyone who said yes is now obliged to, you know, maybe freshen up a little bit. And they come to the party. Except all those who committed all come up with excuses. They're not going to come. And Jesus explains their excuses are somewhat ridiculous. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. I'm not sure it's, it would be appropriate or wise to, to buy a piece of property without first inspecting it. Most likely this man has already seen it. By the way, uh, to purchase land in this culture would take years. Land is very much protected to go within clan and tribe and family. And, and, and so he, he says, well, I, have to, I just bought this piece of property. I have to go see it. The second excuse is also ridiculous. What is it in, in verse 19? Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go and examine them. Please have me excused. Right? Again, you know, no one buys oxen without seeing if they could pull together. It would be like buying five cars sight unseen. The third is my favorite excuse found in verse 20. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Right? Because we all know wives hate to get dressed up and go to fancy parties. Right? 
you know, eat sumptuous food, hang out with people, don't have to, don't have to cook anything or clean up. What, if, you, if you're not married, just understand, wives hate that, okay? They much rather watch uh, TV while they eat. Right? So they're not, you notice why they're not coming. They say they didn't want to, right? They have better offers. They prefer their own affairs to the banquet. Well, who's Jesus speaking of? Well, it's clear he's addressing these Pharisees in this room, isn't he? Who has, uh, after all, who's previously been invited into the kingdom? Is it not the, the Jewish people who have received the Old Testament invitations to come? Is it not, are they not like this religious man who says, you know, it's going to be great when we're all breaking bread in the kingdom of God? Right? They all said yes, and now the servant of God has come, namely Jesus, and say the party is now at hand. You may now enter the kingdom of God. I have brought the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and enter. And instead they love their own fields and they love their own oxen and they love their own families more than God. They prefer their professions, possessions, excuse me, to heaven. And so when he says, blessed is the man who will eat in this banquet, it's just empty religious talk. They don't want the kingdom. They want worldly comfort. Of course, this is not alone reserved for the Jewish people. Thousands of people are constantly doing this throughout our land. Many have received the invitation to this kingdom of feasting and joy. Many have RSVP'd and said, yeah, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and I want to be forgiven and one day I'm going to bow my knee to Him as my King. And Yet when it comes to the final commitment to Jesus, that life-changing commitment, they say, later. I'll do it later. And the same lame excuses. We're too busy, too much going on, things pulling them away. Now's not a good time. You notice, by the way, it's just the good things that distract these people. Nothing wrong about these things. No one says, you know, I'd love to come, but I'm about to rob a bank, so please have me excused. Well, it's all good and nice things, and yet it's keeping them from God. I like how John Piper puts it. He says, the greatest enemy for, of a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of the love of God is not his enemies, but his gifts. My friends, the invitation has gone out, hasn't it? God is preparing this feast, a resurrection feast, and you are invited. I wonder, do you offer him lame excuses? Work is crazy. You're really busy right now. You're working on your marriage. What keeps you from Christ? What, what excuses get in your way? I, there's nothing more important than a relationship with Jesus. In fact, now just, think, just think for a moment. To look at Jesus, the Son of God, and you say to Him, you know, I have better options right now. It's just stupid. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. How, how can you actually say to God, no, thank you, I got better things going on than you, the creator of the world, who wants to bring me into his kingdom? It's the dumbest thing you could do. And yet people do it all the time. It's refused by many who are familiar. And yet you notice, secondly, it is received by the humble. So everybody who said they're coming is not coming. The servant comes and explains this to the master in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master comes up with a new plan. 
as we read on, the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. So you see, master's insulted, isn't he? He's angry. But he doesn't sulk in his anger. He doesn't counsel the party. He doesn't reschedule. He doesn't say, okay, what time can they come? Maybe we could. He, no, he just goes and gets new guests, right? In other words, if you reject the offer or you accept the offer, either way, it's coming. The party's happening. The kingdom is coming, right? And he's not going to wait for anyone. And so he sends this servant to whom? To the outcasts. Right? He says, go, go, go look for the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Go look for anyone in this city who might like a free banquet. Right? Find anyone willing to receive my hospitality. And so the servant goes out a second time and he looks in the streets and the back alleys and he finds the, the poor and the crippled and the blame and the lame, and the lame which I, I think is shocking because what rich person whose other rich friends decide not to come to his birthday party then instead find, uh, decides to go invite a bunch of poor people, poor strangers that he doesn't know. He's out there bringing them in and these, these people who are physically deformed and, and blind and, and, and impoverished. Can you just imagine what that would be like? Just picture that in your mind. How these blind people stumbling into this banquet hall or others being carried into and putting in the chair. And, and these people with rags walking in into this lavish and incredible party. And Kent Hughes imagines it. He says, the physically blemished forced many into poverty, making them ragged outcasts. But now the sumptuous feast, the lavishly appointed tables, and the endless entrees of exquisite cuisine were set before many who could not even see it at all. Blind beggars. The lame and the crippled hobbled to the tables with their eager eyes reflecting the bountiful feast, pitiful rags draped from bent limbs as they eased awkwardly into place. It's being filled. And yet still there are empty seats, according to verse 22. And the servant said, Sir, what, must, uh, what you have commanded has been done, but still there's more room. Right? There's still tables empty. And you see God's mercy continues to extend, this time not to the outcasts, but to the outsiders, as you see in verse 23. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be full. Right? Go outside the city. Go to the roadsides. Invite anybody you can find. You know, the landowners have rejected me. Go find the homeless. Go find people that don't have oxen and fields to distract them. And in fact, he says there, compel them to come in. Persuade them in, right? Because it's too generous. Am I really supposed to? I, I don't belong there. That's not where I, I've never been someplace. I don't go to rich people's parties, they say. No, you have to compel them in, right? Bring in the outcasts. Now, my question for you, who are these beggars? Who are the outcasts? You are. And I am. Right? We are the spiritual beggars who have nothing to offer. Right? We, we, we are the spiritually crippled and the blind and the lame. Right? Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It is only if you are poor in spirit, recognizing that you spiritually you have no wealth at all, and that you are totally destitute, and you are therefore in need of mercy, grace, and forgiveness, that you will actually receive the kingdom. It's the beggars. So we're the beggars. Who's the outsiders? Well, many people think that it's, it's, uh, this is an indication that Jesus is now going to the nations. He's going outside the city into the world. We are the outsiders. 
So this patron holds this mega feast and, and we are the ones who would never qualify for something like this. We have no claim on this king whatsoever. And to our unimaginable surprise, one day he shows up and he says to you, Christian, will you come into my kingdom? It is all ready for you. And you will only come if you are humble. Right? If you're spiritually poor. See, the only people who come are those who have nothing to offer him. You notice that this feast, it's, it's, not, it's not a potluck. Right? It's not, right? You don't, you're not bringing anything to this feast. It's finished. There's nothing to do. All, you, all there is to do is to receive, to eat, to enjoy. In fact, if you try to bring something to it, you ruin it. Can you imagine, let's say, uh, this afternoon, uh, the president calls you up. Just, by the way, just pick your favorite president, okay? Um, we'll just get past that. He says, all right, your favorite president calls you. And he says, listen, you know, I'm throwing a big, big party today, big kind of um, state dinner, and I, w- I would really love it if you could come. Yeah, I-, I live in the big white house just down the road, and uh, why-, why don't you come? And you say, well, Mr. President, that- that's fantastic. I-, I would love to come. In fact, you know, I, I, got some, uh, I got some leftover meatloaf. Let me run home real fast. And they'll throw it in the microwave, and, and I'll, I'll bring that. And, and he would say to you, no, 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 you, you, you don't understand. I have the best chefs in the world, right? You, you can't add anything to this party. In fact, if you try to bring your meatloaf, do you know what you're actually doing? You're insulting it. You're actually going to ruin the party. In fact, if you insist on going home and grabbing your leftovers, I don't, I don't even want you to come. And this is, see, this is, this is how, how, we, how God invites us in. He invites us into the kingdom with nothing to offer him. The, the problem is, is that people don't want grace. They, don't want, they want to merit. They want to contribute to it. They want to, to earn their place in that kingdom. We want to at, at, do our part. This is why every man-made religion in the world, which, by the way, is all of them except this one, everyone is... Fundamentally the same. Here is what you do to merit your place in eternal life. Here are the things you have to do. Here are the rituals to perform. Here's the goodness in which you have to, to contribute in order to get that. Because if we want to earn our way to heaven. The gospel alone comes and says, no, you are beggars with nothing to contribute. The host has done it all. Come. Everything is prepared. All that is left for you to do is to receive the feast, receive the kingdom. It's why only the humble will come. It's those who say, I have no right I have no right to this, but I'm coming. I'm coming with empty hands and a hungry heart. I'm coming as a beggar. Here I come. In fact, I would suggest to you that, that uh, somewhat counterintuitively, uh, life is always better as a beggar. Life is always better as a beggar. See, most people think God loves them, right? You ask the average person on the street, does God love you? They'll say, yeah, of course he loves me. But they're not astonished by that. It doesn't transform them. They kind of say, yeah, he loves me. As if it's God's job to love them. The only people who are thrilled by God's love for them are those who think he ought not to love them, but does so anyway. Right, The people who were yesterday begging on the street and today are eating with the king are astonished at that reality. Right, They are full of joy. My question for you, Christian, is are you thrilled by the idea that God loves you? Is it transformative? 
Does it provide you this indomitable joy? I have the love of God. He loves me. Charles Spurgeon says, always invite beggars to your feast. You know why? Because you invite rich people and they come and they, you bring out the plate in front of them and they look at it and they evaluate it and then they go, hmm, maybe, right? I don't know, right? You invite beggars to your feast and, and, and you bring out food and they say, have you tasted this? Right? And they go, wow, look at that turkey, right? Hooray for the turkey, right? Here comes another one, right? They cheer at every dish, Spurgeon says. Beggars are always cheering, right? Beggars are always celebrating the goodness of God. What are you like? Are you like someone who says to God in, in your day-to-day life, hmm, all right. Or are you someone who's saying, hooray, hooray, you're cheering at every dish, transformed by the love of God for a beggar like you. Or do you think God loves you just because he ought to? Of course, we don't cheer on every dish, do we? We're not. We're not going throughout our day saying, hooray, hooray. And I think it's because, Christian, we're kind of, kind of comfortable now sitting at this banquet table. We kind of feel like we belong. I remember when uh, I came up here about four years ago, my first interview, and, and uh, I drove through Percival. We, we had lived for seven years in, in the um, poorest county in Virginia. There was, there's not a stoplight in, in this county. And I remember going into the Harris Teeter, and uh, uh, Lager will testify. I came home and she said, well, what was the area like? And I said, Lager, you walk into this grocery store. And it's like walking into a garden. Okay. And then, and then there's a Starbucks right there. Right? Now, see, to give the context, we had one grocery store in the county, and it always felt like you were walking into a, a gas station bathroom. Okay? And, and you kind of, your feet kind of stick, and it's got that smell to it, and you just want to get up. And now we're just walking, and there's colors, and there's flowers, and, and, and it was just, and we got up here, and we're like, look at that. I mean, look at the, look at the return um, gates for the carts. Aren't they beautiful? Right? I mean, we're just blown away. And, and now, what is it? Jeez, oh, do I have to wait this long for Starbucks? Right? Now I just walk by the garden, don't even notice it. And I'm afraid, Christian, that's how we kind of, you know, remember when God just grabbed you and brought you into the kingdom? You don't belong here. You know it, but you're here, and you're just like, oh my goodness. Well, now you've been here so long, you start to think you deserve the turkey. Eh, the turkey's not so big. You start to shrug your shoulders at it. You need God to remind you every day that you are a beggar who is brought in by His grace. And I'll tell you, if your life is your life is better like a beggar. Because if your, your life is like a beggar, your whole life will be a feast. There's a Scottish man named Scott uh, Murdo MacDonald, a Scottish man who was captured in World War II. He was uh, put in a prison of war camp with the Americans. And there was another Scottish man who was put in the adjoining prisoner of war camp with the British prisoners of war there. And the Germans controlled the whole thing. These two Scottish men served as chaplains. And one day a week, they met together and they could talk at the fence for just a couple minutes. And then they would go back to their respected courtyards. Well, the Americans had smuggled in a shortwave radio. And so they would tell MacDonald uh, what was happening in the outside world. He would come and tell the other Scottish man at the fence. And he would go and tell the British prisoners of war. One day, word came that Germany had surrendered. 
And MacDonald came and he told his Scottish friend at the fence, listen, the war is over. Now, the Germans had no idea. Communication had totally broke down by this point. And the other Scottish man walked to the British barracks and with 30 seconds from that British barracks, the whole compound heard this massive cheer, this, this celebration. And MacDonald says, for the next three days, we were still prisoners. But we didn't complain about the food. In fact, we smiled at the guards as they pointed their guns at us. On the fourth day, they woke, all the doors were open, the guards were gone. But McDonald said, we were liberated by the news before we were liberated by the guards. That's the power of the gospel. It ought to liberate you, even if you are in prison today. You see, the gospel is not good instruction. It's not earn your way to the feast. The gospel is not good advice like all other religions. It is good news. Jesus has already defeated your enemies. He's done this for no help from you, right? And so it doesn't matter what prison you're in. It doesn't, it doesn't matter the trouble in your life. You could always walk around and smile at the guards pointing gun at you. You could cheer for the food even when it's prison food in light of what Christ has done for you. I'm not saying, please don't hear me, that your life isn't hard. I don't want to minimize the trouble in your life, but I'm saying if you understand who you are and what God has done for you and will do for you, it will create a foundation of this indomitable joy that the circumstances of life, no matter how hard, cannot shake. And you will learn to cheer at every dish. My friends, ask God to make your life a feast on His grace. It is Received by the humble, lastly, you will see that it is filled by the Lord. Filled by the Lord. Look in verse, consider verse 22. It says, The servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. Still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Now notice, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. Why? Here it is. That my house may be full. And I want you just to simply, from that little phrase, see the heart of God. God wants his house full. God will have his worshipers. God will have his feasters, right? He, God, God will have those who rejoice in his glory. In other words, God wants you. He wants your company. He wants your delight, right? He wants to satisfy you with good things. He wants you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, compel them. Don't take no for an answer. My feast must be full. There will be not an empty seat in my feast. And I think what we see here is that Jesus is showing us what our eternal satisfaction is going to be like in in that kingdom when we walk into it in its fullness he wants his people to celebrate he wants his people to feast and worship and delight right this is where he he wants to bring us in i mean can, can you imagine what it would feel like just to be there you know you know when you uh you go on vacation and and if if <laughs> life is anything like my your life like my life or more importantly like allegra's life um like the three weeks before the vacation is just crazy hectic, right? A Lego literally starts packing three weeks before we go anywhere, right? And it's, it's hard. Like, who's going to take care of the dogs? Who's going to do this and that, right? And then, but there's always comes a point in that vacation, right? You walk into the hotel room, you get on the plane, and you walk onto the cruise boat, and you just kind of say, okay, right? And you take a deep breath, and you say, vacation starts now. Don't you love that feeling? 
right? Now you put your hat on. This is the vacation Steve hat, and I'm right. You know, here we go. It's time, time to rejoice, right? It, it, you, you understand that feeling, or am I? Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. You, you have all this stress of life, and the bit, it's just gone. It's a great feeling. Well, can you imagine what it's going to be like one day? I'm, I'm telling you, I believe this all in my heart. One day you are going to sit down at what the Bible calls the wedding feast of the Lord. Right? And life, as you know, is, is over. And there's no more struggle with sin. And the world will not mock you anymore. And there's no one loved ones suffering and dying anymore. Can you just imagine, just for a moment, just think about sitting at that feast and just saying, Okay. And you just take a deep breath. And you say, The vacation starts now. Forever. And ever. And ever. Never anything to worry about ever again. And you sit down and you look across the table and, and there's, there's Jesus. And all your trials are gone. And you have your friends around you and you just look at each other and say, man, we are here. I mean, it is happening. We have made it. There is a never, never land. We've arrived. And, and of course, that's just what you get rid of, all the junk in this life. But think about what you gain. I mean, do you know who's going to be at this feast? The Bible says the nations. Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All races, all nations. I'll tell you, it doesn't matter what your gender is or your intellect or your income or your education or your status or the color of your skin. All nations will be there in that kingdom. We'll all be there at that feast. It will be this incredible multi-ethnic celebration. And by the way, it seems like we'll all be wearing the same thing. You want to know what you wear to this feast? Revelation 7, 9 says, clothed in white robes, right? Revelation 19, 8, at the wedding feast, fine linen, bright and pure. Now, I'll be perfectly honest, I'm not a big robe fan. Uh, that's a little awkward showing up for dinner in a bathrobe. Um, but uh, it's going to be, it's, I think it's cool, it's going to be white, right? Because we don't own white clothes in our house, um, right? And, and this just, I don't know, there's no spills in heaven, evidently. And so we're all in white. Why are we in white? Right? Why does, does the wedding feast of the Lamb, why do brides wear white? Is it because she's sinless? No. But she walks down that aisle wearing brilliant white because she has been made perfect in Christ. She has been covered by the, the cleanliness and the love and the, the glory and the mercy of Christ, right? And we'll all be displaying to each other, not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us, right? So we'll be there, all the nations wearing our white bathrobes. And, and you, know what we'll be, you know what we're having for dinner? The Bible tells us. That's right, Isaiah 25. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all peoples. Right? So God's going to make the feast. God's cooking, evidently. And what are we having? Re- Isaiah 25, 6. Of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Right? So we're going to be eating rich food. Right? And there's no hamburger helper in the kingdom of God. Right? And the center of this meal, according to the prophet, is red wine. And red meat, right? Which, to which I say, amen. <laughs> right? Okay, right? No, it's not, it's, it's what, 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 why? 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 Is red, red meat better than chicken? Um, well, yes it is. Of course it is. I want to say, right? Okay. Where, right there, right before us is a reminder of the blood atonement, isn't it? 
what, what, what we're going to be eating, red wine, red... Now, I'm from California. I got Californians like, I don't, I don't think I like that meal. You know, I don't know about this meat business. And there's other people that have, have trouble with, with alcohol, and I understand that. And I don't know, there might be a kitty table or something where you could eat mac and cheese and grape juice. Um, but, right, but here it is. Uh, I'm just, this is the word of God, so I'm going with that. Um, red, red wine, red meat, best meal ever, all expenses paid, amazing people, best food, and there's entertainment. Do you realize that? Revelation 19.6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. That will be us. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out loud. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Right? We are going to be singing His praise, magnifying Him, exalting Him. Right? And then what's going to happen? You know, Zephaniah 3.17, eventually you and I stop singing and Jesus begins to. He, meaning Jesus, will rejoice over you. So He's coming. He's going to rejoice over you with gladness. Right? He is delighted that you are here. He will quiet you by His love like a, bride, like, like, like a bridegroom quiets a bride. And He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen. Now just imagine this. You're, you're in the kingdom of God and, and uh, you, you just met Abraham. And, and there's Isaac and, and Jacob over there and Ezekiel and Gideon and Josiah over there. And, Sarah and Hannah and Ruth and Rahab. And there's Andrew and James and Paul and John Mark and Barnabas and Timothy. Oh, here's Mary and Martha and Tabitha and Magdalene. Oh, there's Mr. Luther and Augustine and Zwingli and Bunyan and Spurgeon and Judson. And, and then some old lady just comes and wraps her arms around you and happens to be your great-great-great-grandma who you never met but is just so delighted that you have bowed your knee to King Jesus and she just can't wait to get to know you and for you to know her. And then there's, there's countless others who have died for the faith, the martyr's death, and you've never heard their story, though it's extraordinary. And you're just kind of sitting around as you, as you eat and you're hearing people testify to what God has done in their life and how He brought them to this place. And there's no rush and all. You've got no place to be. And you're just hearing the incredible testimonies of God's grace and your heart is filled with thanksgiving and then and then Jesus walks into the room and then it just gets quiet and you see his face and and you've never felt more loved than you do at that moment I don't care who's loved you and he's so glad he's so filled with joy and everyone gets real quiet. And Jesus starts singing of his love for you. And my friends, it's, it's almost too much to take. And I have no clue why anybody would say no to that. I got better offer. Look what he says in verse 24 as we end our time together. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. See, those who got that first invitation, they, they don't come back later and say, you know, can I have a doggy bag? Can I, can I have something? In fact, these people seem like they're in head of the line and they lost everything. I don't know, it may look like to you, you're the head of the line. You are here in church this morning after all. But God knows your heart. Have you, 
said yes, perhaps to the first invitation, but yet have Christ has come and said, now it's time to come into my kingdom? Have you, have you come? Have you turned from your sin? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Have, have, you, have, have you come into this party in which he is throwing and one day he will complete? You know, the reason why he's able to invite you is because he left the party in heaven and came down here and became poor. And he was mocked like we are increasingly mocked. And he was beaten and he was scorned and he was crucified and he was murdered. And he did all of that not because he was a bad man but because I am and you are. And he took all of our punishment upon himself. And three days later he, he rose from the grave and he's ascended to heaven. And he said in John 14, listen, I'm going up there. But please understand, I'm going just to prepare a place for you. I'm going to get it ready. Right? See, Jesus was thrown out of the feast. So you, a beggar, a sinner might be brought in. He's done all the work. All you have to do is come. He invites you to come. He invites you to enter into His kingdom by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. The Scripture tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, that's repentance. That's a, that's a bending of your knee and saying, I no longer rule my life. You do. You're my Lord. I'll do what you say. I'll go where you send. I'll say what you tell me to say. And you, and you uh, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That's faith. I believe you are who you are, say you are. And I'm trusting you. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Amen. Won't you make that confession now? Won't you place your faith in Him now? And for my Christian brothers and sisters, let's start feasting. Right? Let's remember the beggars that we are. And all the good in our life is simply God's grace to you. It is. Your health, in fact, you're here this morning, you have a church you love, that loves you. Your job, you're, you're a college student, you, you, ha- you have a home, your, your love for your spouse, all of it. All, all that you had is God's gift to you. It's not something you earn. It's not your own goodness. Ask God to cast away our self-righteous heart. Stop taking credit for what He's done in our life. And realize the beggars that we are, that we might rejoice at His goodness. That we might cheer all day long. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the goodness that You have bestowed upon us. That we, we do not belong in Your kingdom. We don't. We have no right to claim this. We have no righteousness in our own to say, okay, this is why I ought to be here. We are simply spiritually blind, crippled, and lame. We are outcasts. And you, by your grace, have invited us in. One day we are begging on the street spiritually, and now we're feasting with the King forever. Will you help this news, even in the midst of life's difficulties, give us this joyful heart that life would become for us a feast. We pray for our friend here this morning that has keeping you at arm's length. Father, will you even work in that we call them just as you call these people to your feast. Call them into your feast, Father, that they might come in. Give them faith to believe, a willingness to surrender. Father, continue to work in their heart. Maybe some are seeking you and still unsure. Father, will you help them and guide them into truth that your feast will be full. You would have your worshipers, you would have your glory, and we would have our eternal joy, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.